would care to know my name. Hard to fathom. Truly hard to fathom. Creator of the universe spoke and brought the heavens into existence. He knew us before we knew us. He knew everything we'd ever do, good, bad, and ugly, and still loved us with an unconditional love. We celebrate the Lord's table as designed to consistently bring us back and get us to ask some important questions. Some important questions, have we made any progress since the last time we partook of the Lord's table? Is, is, is this just another ritual that we go through from time to time to just uh, try and appease an angry God? That's the way some people view it. And actually, that's not it at all. This is indeed a ritual. It can't save. Participation in it is not going to get you into heaven or keep you out of it. But what it does do is remind us of the one that can get us into heaven. The one that indeed is the only Savior. See, it, simple truths. That, that last song we did. Truths handed down from the dawn of time. Basic things. There is a God. I'm not Him. Basic truth that is there. This God is absolute holiness. That means that sinful being or creature cannot come into his presence fully without his without his okay now how are we going to get where we can where we can come into the presence of a totally righteous god we've got to be given the righteousness because our righteousness in isaiah it says there're nothing but filthy rags in front of him they're absolutely useless they don't mean anything so we do all these good works, and so what? Titus 3, 5, we're not saved on the basis of the deeds that we have done. We are saved by His kindness, by His grace. And so we come together, we, we get ready to partake of the elements, and we have to look at ourselves first in the, in the mirror of the Word of God. That's been, this has been taught since early on in the history of the world. Because the priest had to go to the bronze altar first before they went into the tabernacle. The bronze altar is about salvation. You've got to come to the Lamb, unblemished, sacrificed, in your place. The substitutionary atonement. You have to come to the one that did that. The next thing, before you go in and worship, is you go to the bronze laver. One of those little pieces of furniture so easily overlooked. And you look down in there into the polished hand mirrors to wash your hands. You took a look at yourself. That's what it amounted to. That's what a priest was supposed to do before they walked through that veil into the holy place of the tabernacle. To take a look at yourself. To make any adjustments if you need to. To wash your hands, if you will. Then that's what was required. That's what we, that's called confession of sins. Take a good, honest look at ourselves. You know, we're in a, in a world anymore that the only sins that are around are yours. They don't belong to us, do they? Because we figured out ways to rationalize them. Societies have figured out a way, out ways to do away with them. 
to legitimize them, to legalize them. And that's not the way God designed it. Is there an ultimate authority or not is the question everybody has to ask. And if you say no, then you somehow think that out of rocks came thinking beings. And I just don't have that kind of faith. That is not scientific. That is not anything other than foolishness. But that a thinking, conscious, omnipotent, omniscient being brought us into existence. I don't have any trouble with that faith. That's just a step of faith. So he has given us this plan and he says, I want you to come in to the holy place. As when they walked into the holy place, they had the bread of the showbread. You know, Jesus said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. He was the real deal. The man in the wilderness, that didn't keep anybody alive. It's the man that came down out of heaven that keeps people alive. He indeed was the bread of the world, John chapter 6. And then they went to what? The lampstand to trim the wicks. It was the only light in the holy place. Jesus is the, what? Light of the world. And then where did they go? They went to the altar of incense. And that incense, when it was burned, it permeated the holy place and the holy of holies. That's a picture of the fact that our prayers get into heaven. Because when that veil was finally torn, we couldn't go back there where the ark was. We were not permitted, and only the high priest one day a year was permitted to go into that ark. We were not permitted to do that until that veil was torn away. And that was done through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ is what we're told in Hebrews 10. He went and tore it away. So heaven is now open. So we can go to heaven. How do we go to heaven? Through performing all the works of the law? By grace through faith. To go back and remember that, and for a lot of us, that is so ingrained in us, we couldn't think anything different. We think we couldn't, but if, take heed if you think you stand lest you fall. Because the enemy does not play fair. He is out to destroy anything that represents the grace of the Almighty God. He is out to destroy anything that represents the righteousness of the Almighty God. He is out to destroy God. He wants to bring him down. He said he would ascend to the high places. He would ascend above the heights of the clouds. That's what he said. But he can't win. So what is his objective? To bring God down. Now, we know he's he's not going to win. We have faith. And you know that faith that David talked about. Faith builds hope. Because hope is about faith for the future. That's what it does. Faith builds hope. And hope is properly expressed, is expresses itself in love. Love does not mean do anything you want to do without any accountability. Love, in fact, is highly accountable. It is patient. It is kind. It is not brag. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Love never fails is what we are told in the scripture but you know the greater the love you have and the more you become Christ-like and you learn to love the unlovable the more that that happens within us the greater our hope see faith builds hope which is expressed in love and as we express that in love it builds our hope which is expressed in a greater faith those are so interrelated and interconnected so as we partake of the Lord's table, it's good to ask if we made any progress. If we haven't, now's a good time to say, uh, I need to get 
get it done a little better this this next time. Now is a good time to say that maybe I need to dig in a little deeper. Maybe I need to get a little more serious. Now is a good time to do that. It's a time to confess any sins if necessary. It's a time really just to focus on the greatness of this one that knows who we are and still loves us. Let's pray. Father, we are so amazingly blessed. Father, you told us to seek to understand that, but what we know, it's above uh, height and width and depth and breadth of it is beyond anything we can think or imagine. But Father, I pray that as we grow in this grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we would grow in faith, and our faith would be stronger that we would have a greater hope, one that we're willing and able to share with others, and that we would do so in love, one that shows graciousness. And Father, let us not give up on anybody. Some seem to be incorrigible, but that's not our call. Let us not give up on anybody. But I pray, Father, that as Paul prayed, that we would have the boldness to be willing to speak, to tell people about the greatness of our Savior and the greatness of your plan and the revelation of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that we would indeed have that and that our ministry that you have given to us would be one that honors and glorifies you in all things. Father, we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We have two elements in the um, Lord's table. We have the bread and the cup. And the bread is a picture of the perfect person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we start thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and where do you want to start? John, in the, in the last chapter of the gospel, says, I guess if we tried to write everything down, the world couldn't contain all the books. And see, what? How long did he know him? Three years. Three and a half years. So... We, the, what he did and who he is is so beyond our thoughts. As David said, his thoughts are not ours. It is so above anything we can think. But the man, Jesus Christ, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. And the Word, that's God, became flesh. That's Jesus, and dwelt among us. Glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. He had the perfect balance in his humanity. Think about that. Because truth without grace is too harsh, and grace without truth is too easy. And he had the perfect balance of knowing when to point out sin, how to point out sin, how to wrap it in grace, how to make it very clear that apart from belief in Him, a person is condemned. He who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. He lived a perfect life, grew up, confounded the wise men at the age of 12 in the temple. He, was <clears throat> he learned, learned in the synagogues. It says in Luke 2.40, the child grew in knowledge and wisdom. 
That was just growing up as a kid. I know when I was 12 years old, I didn't have a lot of spiritual things on my mind. All I cared about was baseball and camping out. So, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, highly virtuous things (laughs) that were there. But as we grow up, but in the Lord, He did. That's what He thought about. As we grow up, and we get beaten up a bit, and then we start saying that there really is only one way, and that way is the Lord Jesus Christ. And why would we follow Him? Is He but a carpenter's son? Is He but a man? Do we view Him like His family did? His brothers and sisters, do we view Him in the same? He's just another one of us. He's just another sinner like we are. Only now he's a little bit loony. How do we how do we view him? Like his family? Like the Pharisees? Like the Sadducees? How do we view him? Like the Romans? Crazy man? We should view him that <coughs> the perfect man. Perfect humanity. Ultimate grace and truth wrapped up together in one being. That's what this little piece of bread is about. This bread that he said is broken for you. So, as we partake of the bread, (coughs) go ahead and pull the appropriate top off of this thing. Don't pull them both at once. (coughs) We think about the fact that he said this is my body that is broken for you keep on doing this in remembrance of me as we partake of this bread let us think about the Lord Jesus Christ himself let us eat but that's just part of it He was qualified because he was absolutely perfect. Had he ever sinned, he'd be just like Adam. He'd be just like us. But he did not sin, and therefore he was qualified. But being true humanity and true deity, therefore having the perfect ability to choose, he knew the cross was a decision that he and his humanity had to make. He knew what was happening. He knew that he was going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He knew that his friends were going to betray him. He knew that that he would be abandoned and they would be like sheep without a shepherd. He knew that he would go through six trials and nobody could really find two witnesses to agree on this, on anything. They couldn't find anything to accuse him of legally under the Mosaic law or even under any Roman law. They couldn't find anything to accuse him of and yet still he would be condemned to death. But when he went to the cross, he said, I'd lay down my life willingly for you. Now, he'd said, nobody takes my life from me. This is a touch of God and man put together. It says, Romans, I don't care how many swords you have, or horsemen, or shields, or anything else. Jews, I don't care how many sticks and stones and all that you have. 
Nobody takes my life from me. But I lay it down willingly for you. So he laid down on the cross. And the nails were driven in. Then the cross was raised, set into its place on the hill. And for three hours, people like you and I walked by and mocked him. His countrymen, his family, his disciples fled, just like the prophecy said they would. They ran off. And for three hours, he listened to people like us say, if you're really the Messiah, come down off that cross. And then we'll believe. He endured people spitting on him after he'd been beaten to what would have killed most men. He was beaten within an inch of his life, if you will. And he endured all that and he went to the cross and then the sky went dark for three hours. And he cried out over and over and again, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the answer to that is profound because it's us. You and I. That's the answer to that question. Why have you forsaken me? It's because we could not pay a debt we owed. His love was so great, it paid the debt for us. He could have come down off the cross. I don't, I, I think that uh, the testing that happened right there was probably some of the worst. Come down off that cross, then we'll believe. But he couldn't do that and ease his own pain and sins be paid for. So he endured the cross, despising the shame. And now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This cup is about that enduring on the cross, the cup that only he could drink. That cup is what is pictured here. Let's go ahead and prepare the cup. Take the top off. And the same night he was betrayed, he took the cup and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you partake of this bread and this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes back again. Let us drink. Let's pray. Father, as we sang earlier, love so amazing. Jesus Messiah, name above all names. Love so amazing. <clears throat> How can we say thank you with anything other than ourself? How can we adequately do that without presenting ourselves a living holy sacrifice? Father, to come in front of your throne of grace, divine grace and mercy and help to help in time of need. Father, we need that. We are in the midst of a world that is so hostile to the cross of Christ right now. But Father, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he went through the same thing. The entire world turned against him for a period of time and put him on a cross which actually accomplished the victory the victory of all time, proven when he walked away from a tomb 
three days later. Father, we cannot thank you enough for your plan. We can't thank you enough for including us in it. And Father, when we start complaining about how rough it gets down here, I pray that we will indeed be reminded of what our Lord went through for us and that we will lose this grumbling that so easily sets in to our life. Father, we give you the praise. May we never forget our Lord Jesus Christ. May we celebrate him above all. For we ask it in his name. Amen. And they all sang a hymn. Hallelujah. Please be seated. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. Chapter 20 and verse 1. We're going to continue our study of this amazing book. Um, as we realize, uh, yesterday is the 4th of July, the day we celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, a lot of people were celebrating around our neighborhood last night because it sure got loud and noisy and all those things. And we miss having uh, Seth here this morning to, to read. Uh, several of you mentioned that to, to uh, do a Medal of Honor winner or, or whatever, just to remind us. But we are in a nation that um, in a lot of ways has forgotten what freedom's all about. There's still a lot of us around the, the old people, the old guard, and it's nice to see some young people actually coming along that, that, that get it. And that, that's just such a blessing. Is that I found as we get older, it's nice to see the young people carrying the torch and some of them picking it up. It's really, really a, a great thing. But the whole concept of, of freedom brings with it responsibility. And that's what seems to be lost in part is that somehow freedom is being redefined, attempt to redefine it, to say no responsibility. I want the, there's a song done by, I'll leave him unnamed, uh, We Shall Be Free is the name of the song, and it says, When you're free to love anyone you choose, we shall be free. Well, we are free to love anyone we choose. Okay, already. But some of it builds a nation and others tears it down. That's what happens. The divine institutions of volition is under attack. It says that you can't even think for yourself or decide for yourself that you're just a product of your environment and your environment determines how you're going to choose in any given set of circumstances. That's what's being taught our kids in the schools. They somehow think that it's everybody else's fault and everything else's fault. And you know, I'm sure glad that throughout the history of the world, there's a whole lot of people didn't buy into that lie. And they realize that my decisions are what, what makes the difference. I have the ability to decide. 
We have freedom, but when you do away with responsibility, when you do away with laws, when laws, you do away with laws that don't maintain order within a society or don't promote the individuals of, of other people, we should let people express what they want to and have the freedom to express our own views. When we start trying to shut people up altogether, now some people I'd like to shut up, just honestly, in front of you. Um, you know, we have freedom of speech in this nation we view as an inalienable right to be able to state your position and your preference. And right now, if you state that, you're in trouble. If you state it to the wrong people, they're going to come after you with, with both barrels blazing. They're going to try to take you out. But Christians, what are we supposed to do? Just sit here and take it? In a, in a nation where we have the freedom to speak according to the Constitution of the United States. It's not only taught us by God we should have a freedom to speak, but it's written down in our, the supreme law of the land. So to be browbeat and to not speaking our mind and speaking our peace is a mistake. It's a mistake for which the nation will pay. We need to pray as Paul did in Ephesians 6 when he talked about putting on the full armor of God and our fight is not against flesh and blood. And he asked, he didn't ask that he be released. You notice in that prayer? He prayed, he said, I want you to pray for me and I want you to pray for my boldness. To do what? To speak as I ought to speak. Whenever we get the opportunity, that should be our prayer every day. Show me, Lord, Teach me, like that song, Speak, O Lord, teach me how to do this. Show me how to speak. Show me how to speak with, with honor. Show me how to speak with, with your authority, thus says the Lord. Show me how to speak as you would have me speak. Oftentimes when I go into situations and, and have um, counseling, I ask not just for the right words, but the right way to say it. Because it's so important how we say things to, uh, to do it. Now, we're in Revelation 20. This is uh, coming down, this handful of verses that we're getting ready to look at. These first six verses is kind of what a lot of stuff just boils down to. This little chapter, just a handful of verses, like I say, that's in here. But this is kind of bringing to a head all of history, all of human history. It's going to actually bring to a close angelic history as well. And the two will be melded together in what we know as the eternal state that will be described in chapter 21, 22. But this chapter 20 is bringing it all together. Now, first three verses are about Satan being bound for a thousand years. We've been looking at the millennial kingdom in the first session, so we have some idea of what, what the millennium will look like, what the world will look like for a thousand years. Some idea, a very general overview at 30,000 feet is all we've got there. We don't have specifics. But here is chapter 20, verse 1. We've just seen the beast and false prophet thrown into the lake of fire at the end of chapter 19. And these are, there's a lot of information packed into these verses. So it's going to take, um, we're going to have to think through it. And it says, and I, this is John speaking, saw an angel coming down. Remember at the end of the last chapter, the vision got shut off because he fell at the feet of the angel to worship him. 
and then, then he boom, no more no more vision. Okay, got him back up. Vision continues. So now John is saying, okay, here it goes. I saw an angel coming down. This is a present participle of katabino, meaning to come down, and it's just a reminder of this present participle. John is living this vision. And he actually is seeing this angel coming down in this vision from the heaven. The heaven will take us up to either the third heaven or maybe even mid-heaven. The heaven is what's in view. And then it says this angel having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now the abyss we've looked at before to some degree we've seen it uh, six times already in uh, Revelation it's used seven times in Revelation it's only used nine times uh, in the entire New Testament and it is um, part of the the bottomless pit the abyss is what's being talked about now we got to put our thinking caps on this is one of these uh, sections that you're going to have to put the rest of the Bible together to try and grasp what's what's going on here. And he says that he had this key to the abyss. Now, Jesus originally had the key to Hades. Okay? And you've got that chart that I put together, Shale Hades, for you. And I'm going to explain this chart as we as we go through it. Jesus originally had the key to Hades. And it was given to Satan in Revelation 9.1. We know he had it from Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18, which says, Do not be afraid. He's talking to John. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I, Jesus, have the keys of death and of Hades. So who had the key to start with? Jesus did. Okay. He was given to Satan at nine one nine one, and the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him, and he opened the bottomless pit. Smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And then we know the demons were released for five months out on out on the earth. So we find that it was evidently given to Satan to open up the bottomless pit in conjunction with the fifth trumpet judgment. It was evidently taken back from him because Jesus had it, gave it to Satan. It was taken back possibly in conjunction with the angelic war of chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. That follows a chronological sequence. And says, and there was war... In heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. We covered that verse. Here is Satan once again in the four different titles frequently used to describe who he is. And we're going to see those same titles used in the, the next couple of verses. Now, we do not know the identity of this angel. 
Anytime you go into a verse like this, you start asking questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Okay? Who's talking? Who are they talking to? What are they saying? That's where the original languages come in handy. When? When does it apply? When is this happening? Where does it fit in the chronology? Where does it happen? Heaven, on earth, specific place on earth. Why? How? We don't always have the answer to that. Okay? Uh, who, what, where, when, where, why, and how? How we don't always have the answer to. Why we don't always have the answer to. But when you, if you don't ask the questions, you don't get the answers. Okay? So you ask the question in every verse that you're, that you're studying in the Bible. This is basic hermeneutics. It's basic way of, of reading anything, actually. We don't know, but it could be the angel of 1917 who is standing in the sun. Now, Michael, I mean, my first thought would go to Michael. Well, that's Michael. No, he's busy. Remember, he's got his right foot in the ocean, his left foot on the land. He's holding back the king in the north when this happened. So I don't think it's Michael. I think it's the angel who was standing in the sun. He is the most recent in context. You have principles of language called the rule of the immediate antecedent. We run into that when we find he, she, it, we, you, they. When we find the pronouns that are used, then you look back till you find a noun that is named. And like the devil... He. Well, you know that he is referring back to the devil. And so that's how you read just about anything. And you, you stay with that unless the Bible forces you to see that there's a change of topic only by means of pronoun, which is not usual. But so we would look back and say, this is the angel standing in the sun, probably, but we could not make a definitive statement that it is. Now, Hades is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol. Sheol, the Hebrew word, Sheen, Sheol. And Hades is the Greek equivalent. That's the Greek word. It's the Greek equivalent of that. Hades contains the bottomless pit. Okay? It contains the bottomless pit, which leads to the lake of fire. I'm going to go ahead and put these up here. I got the animation sequence out of whack this morning so uh, the the Hades contains the bottomless pit so this whole thing is called Sheol I got I didn't change that up there that should say Sheol Hades your handout does doesn't it okay I got it fixed on that and didn't fix it on here it's Sheol Hades now there is this Abyss, and that's what this is. This is a divider between paradise and torments, and it is a pit. It is called the bottomless pit. The word pit is the word freear, P-H-R-E-A-R, that we're going to see in the next verse, and it's a word used for a well. It's only used seven or eight times in the New Testament, but it refers to a well. So we have the idea that this is a, a pit, that goes goes down and and it's a uh, it leads to the lake of fire. That's where it goes. So somewhere in conjunction with this this pit, these other things are connected down to the pit. Now there are many references to believers going to Sheol in the Old Testament. 
When you first see the word Sheol, you think it's a place of torment. You think it's a place of punishment. And sadly, this is in parts where Roman Catholicism got their concept of um, purgatory from was that believers would go down to a place of torments or or whatever for a period of time until they atoned for their sins and then they were let out of it now that's that's they didn't quite do the systematic theology rights for what what it amounts to so we're putting together all these verses and drawing a, a map we're getting a picture of what's being talked about here Many references to believers going to Sheol in the Old Testament. Jacob says, oh, my gray hair is going down to Sheol. He viewed himself whenever he died as if he was going to Sheol. Does that mean he was going to hell? No. He didn't view himself as going to hell. He viewed himself as a place where he died, and that's called Sheol. Sheol, Hades. Those are the two that, that are equivalent. Uh, same thing in 42, 44. 2 Samuel 22, 6, Jonah, uh, wrapped up in Sheol. That may kind of seem like hell, but he wasn't going to hell. I mean, he was a believer. God doesn't send unbelievers somewhere to give gospel, give the gospel to a, uh, hostile, uh, enemy. So that you find many cases of believers actually going to Sheol, which is a place of the dead. That's a traditional view. Sheol Hades is not just a place for torment. Okay, so you have to realize that to begin with. The believers are going there. It's not a place for torment. Hades is translated in the King James as hell. So Hades is brought into the New American Standard. I believe the English Standard uses it. King James Version calls it hell. But the Greek word is actually Hades. So it is that, that's where we get Hades from. One thing we can say about Sheol, from Proverbs 27:20, 20, Sheol and Abaddon, we've seen that in the book of Revelation, are never satisfied. Nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. It's never full. There's always room for somebody else. And that's a warning. Now, some people say you shouldn't scare people to try and get them out of hell. Scare the hell out of them, I guess. You're not supposed to try and do that. But I tell you what, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And I've, I've always seen it that way. If you don't want to go, go to Hades, hell, you don't want to go, then you need to figure out how not to get there. Um, the Lord knows exactly who's there. Proverbs fifteen eleven, and He knows why. Which says... Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. Now, there are compartments of Sheol that are separated by a great chasm or tunnel into the bottomless pit. So, here is the chasm of the great gulf fix. This is the word chasma. <laughs> Well, we got original on that translation, didn't we? Okay. It's a, it's a hole in the ground is what it amounts to. It's a chasm and it's used to try and say this is something that, that, uh, it's, it's a big empty hole in the ground. That's what it is. The only place the word is used in the New Testament. And, and it's used in Luke 16, 26. Besides all of this, this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. 
King James calls it the great gulf fixed. But it is the word for chasm. In order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And so here is this hole, if you will, and the rich man is in torments, not just because he was rich. And where's Lazarus? Abraham's bosom or paradise. Now, what did the Lord say to the thief on the cross? Behold, you shall be with me in paradise. It didn't say heaven. Oftentimes, I, I start reading commentaries and go about half nuts, so I don't read a whole lot of them. But they say that paradise equals heaven. No, paradise is a place in Sheol, which is the, the place of the dead, if you will. And paradise, Abraham's bosom, could see across to torments according to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, some people say it's a parable so it doesn't prove anything. Well, the Lord was not in the habit of misquoting things. <laughs> Whenever he stated something, and he stated it even in a parable, he's not going to get this definitive and it be inaccurate. Because the devil would love nothing better than to get that, to find something inaccurate that the Lord had said. So I, I look at this and go, okay, they could see each other, but they couldn't go back and forth because of the great gulf fixed. This is the bottomless pit. So it's like they came down here and the unbelievers went into torments and the believers went over into paradise, Abraham's bosom, until the time of resurrection or the cleaning out. That's what we're going to deal with in just a second. Now, this chasm is the tunnel to the bottomless pit. You could call it the bottomless pit. We don't want to get too uh, bent out of shape, useless wranglings over words. One side is paradise, Abraham's bosom. The other is torments where unbelieving humanity is sent, and also Tartarus. Now, why have a separate place here? Tartarus is for the incarcerated spirits that were pre-flood. That was the angelic infiltration of mankind. There were certain of them that were locked up. And they are in a place called Tartarus, identified in Jude 6. We also find a minor reference in 1 Peter 3.19 about the spirits now in prison. So we have this, this uh, group of uh, demons that were involved in that, and they were locked up. And I'll show you why some of them are locked up and some of them aren't locked up. Presently, Torments or Tartarus has a king, but their king isn't there in Revelation 9-11. They were trying to take each verse, let it speak for itself, and put, it to, put the puzzle together. What does Sheol, Hades, look like? Revelation 9-11, they have as king over them... The angel of the abyss, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and the Greek is Apollyon, is destroyer. That's who he is. He wants to destroy people. Now, not all fallen or, unslaved, or unsaved angels are in the abyss, as some are still free on the earth. Now, I personally think that all of the angels fell. And... I'm not in the majority. I don't mind telling you that. But I read Colossians 1.20. 
to reconcile all things in heaven or on earth. That's why Jesus came. And in the context, the all things includes angels. You can't argue that it doesn't include angels. Now, reconcile means to move from a position of hostility to a position of peace. It's a word inherently means change. And when you track it, it means that they were once in a position of hostility. Now they're in a position of peace. So why would he need to reconcile all things if all things hadn't fallen? Why does the whole creation groan awaiting the coming of the king? And you look at that and you go, did, did some angels just, some angels made it and Adam didn't? Or did everybody need a savior? Did the universe need a redeemer? And it looks to me like the greatness of our king as he took care of everything that, it caught, that was a sin for every being who ever lived. Now that to me is the greatness of the cross. It does nothing but expand the greatness of our king as to who he is and what he did on the cross. Now, in any event, there were angels that... Are, some are still free on the earth. So not all the pre-flood angels got thrown into Tartarus. Okay? In Luke 8, verse 30 and 31, Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. We're all familiar with this, this individual that's demon-possessed with many demons. And he asked him, What's your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And the demons, it said, were entreating him, Jesus, not to command them to depart into the abyss. See, abyss is used twice outside the book of Revelation, and this is one of them, Luke eight thirty one. And so they're saying, don't send us into the abyss yet. And they're begging for that. And and Jesus said no, and that's when he put them in a herd of swine and run them off a cliff and took care of them. But they were not headed right then for the abyss. But they knew, I find it interesting, they knew what their doom was, didn't they? Hey, this all plays into the angelic conflict, the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. They know what their doom is. also indicates that maybe if salvation were offered, it's no longer offered. Because it would seem like at that point in time to say, hey, don't just send us to hell right now, but instead, how about we get saved? Didn't happen. You know, the demons at the first advent knew who he was, too. There was one demon-possessed individual crying out, this is, this is the, the son of the living God. And he was, he was doing that, and Jesus said, shut up. Basically, because why would you want a demon trying to tell people who you are? So anyway, when the Lord ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he led captivity captive. A phrase that kind of hard you have to stop and think about. Which means he took the inhabitants of Sheol paradise with him. Ephesians 4, 8. So these are all of the believers prior to the day of Pentecost when the church age began and that time between the resurrection of Christ and His ascension okay, to the Father. You have Him appearing to people for over a period of 40 days and He led captivity captive. They were captive in paradise. 
It didn't mean it was unpleasant, but they were still not free to partake in heaven because their sins had only been atoned for. Atonement means to cover. It's like saying, we've got a big pile of debt here and we're going to pull a tarp up, put a tarp over it. Okay, the tarp's over it, but the debt's still there. But whenever he paid for the sins, it's all taken away. So, prior to the cross, sins were just covered. That is the day of atonement. They were just covered until the cross, then they were taken away. They're no longer an issue. No longer an issue at all, because they've all been paid for. So, he led captivity captive. He took them with him back to the Father to heaven. He emptied paradise is really what he did. And that other guy on the cross, I bet he was glad. He'd only been there for 40 days or so. And I bet he was glad. Hey, I know you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when he showed up. Ephesians 4, 8, When he ascended on high, he led captive a coast of, host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He's talking about the start of a new age where gifting and spiritual gifts come into play. This included all the Old Testament saints, but they did not receive their resurrection bodies yet until the end of the age of Israel. Because what is said, we're putting verses together again. Daniel chapter 12, first two verses, makes the statement, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise... Okay, is he has he arisen? Remember, he's got his right foot in the med, left foot on the land. He's protecting Israel right now. This is talking about Second Advent stuff, and that there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That's the tribulation period. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. How are they going to be rescued? Zechariah 14. See, Revelation is progressive. Okay? So we get pieces of Revelation, and then you put the puzzle together. They're going to be rescued because they're going to go through the Mount of Olives. It's been, it's been split in half so they could get away. They'll be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground. This is the picture of the believer who has passed physically but has not gotten their resurrection body. The same type of thing for the church. We've had a lot of relatives that are believers that have passed. And that picture is they're asleep. Okay? But to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. So we have, and it's been termed by theologians, an interim body. Until that time of receiving the resurrection body. The church won't get the resurrection bodies till the rapture. Okay? They're spirits, incorruptible, immortal, and all, all of that. But they don't have a body like Christ until the rapture happens in the church. Now, the age of Israel's saints, first shall be last, last shall be first. Isn't that interesting how that all plays together. And then you have the, the, the Old Testament saints. They're going to get their bodies at the second advent because they need their bodies so they can come back and eat. Because they're getting ready to have a big feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the millennial kingdom. So he needs something that resembles a resurrection body so we can eat fish like Jesus did in John 21. 
See, the little things all fit together whenever you let the Scripture uh, do the talking, if you will. Many of those in sleeping will awake. These to everlasting contempt and others to disgrace and, ever, uh, and uh, everlasting life and others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He's saying that there's going to be uh, uh, resurrection and it's going to be the believers are going to be resurrected there at the second advent and be able to partake. The unbelievers are not going to be resurrected till the end of the millennium for the everlasting contempt. Currently, there's a man from the past residing in the abyss that will exit and become the beast out of the sea or the Antichrist. Revelation 11, verse 7 and 8. Say, where's the word abyss used? You have to look seven times in the book of Revelation. Chapter 11, 7, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss. They are the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Okay, so it is a man from the past who has already died. His soul and, and spirit, if you will, his soul is residing there in torment, whoever it is. But he comes up out of the abyss. And Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not... He existed before John in 96 A.D. He's not alive in 96 A.D. And is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Now, that would be pretty bad, wouldn't it? You get out of the abyss, but then you're getting into something worse. Okay? Out of the abyss. Oh, that's bad. Torments. That's bad. But then he goes to destruction, which is a word means ruination. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. A man from the past. Now, <clears throat> that was uh, it took a long time to get through verse 1. I was just getting my throat cleared out real good here. But we've run run out of time again. Because I don't want to blow through verse 2. Verse 2 is this, this is the, when you, when you look at his names, you understand what his names are. You get a real picture of what we're up against in this life. When you understand what, what dragon means. That he is a political operative. That's how he works. When you understand the serpent of old, you go back to the Garden of Eden. When you understand the devil is a is a slanderer, that's diabolos. And Satan means he's an adversary, as in a court of law. You get the picture of this conflict that's been going on between God and Satan, and man is in the middle of it. So what role do we have here? Are we just play toys? Has God offered us something so amazingly great that whatever we go through right now is worth every bit of it? It is. But that's a walk of faith, isn't it? And the more you know about it, the greater your hope is. And the more you learn about it, you know, the more I need to love, love people as God does.
Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for your mercy, your grace, your love, for your amazing plan. Thank you for your word. Father, we're fascinated every time we open it up, because every time we open it up, we get a little clearer picture, or a little deeper uh, bit of it, a little more information, by which we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may we be your witnesses. As you give us opportunities, may we have the courage to seize them. May we not be timid or shy, but may we indeed be bold, and yet may we have our speech seasoned with grace so that we may give grace to help in time of need. Father, we pray that you would lead and guide us in all things and give us wisdom. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.